Well, it's a good morning. God is at work, and we're so thankful uh, for the amazing ways that God does work in our lives and in the lives of people around us. Uh, one of the most important things that we can do to uh, worship him is to uh, just give him thanks, actually, for who he is and what he's done, and yet sometimes it's hard for us to notice uh, because we're doing this or doing that, and we have maybe a concept of what is amazing that doesn't quite line up with uh, God's concept. And so I uh, just want to give thanks. I want to worship God and ask you to give thanks today. Uh, first of all, I, I, I think we should give thanks for Bill and Pam being able to be here uh, with us today. Uh, we're really been missing the two of you, and uh, just uh, so thankful the people that I've talked to that have talked to Bill and Pam these past few weeks have uh, all come away saying the way they've been encouraged by their faith and trust in Christ, and that's a big thing, and so we want to give thanks to God for strengthening them, even as uh, Bill's had to endure some uh, sickness and, and things like that, so we're really grateful for you, and also really grateful for uh, Joshua and Julie Lee. I don't know where they are, but just uh, so thankful for, uh, for your endurance. It's been, it was neat to get together with uh, Joshua earlier this week and hear more of the long story, actually, of their work there in Myanmar, and uh, it's just an amazing thing that we should just step back and thank God that he raises up individuals who persevere and endure in places that are um, where they're not seeing always a lot of fruit, and yet they keep preaching the gospel, keep serving Christ, and keep um, taking the next step forward. And that's God. That's God at work in people's lives, and we as a church should be thankful. So we're thankful uh, for you and looking forward to this next few months that we get to spend more time with you and pray alongside of you. But now we get to go to God's Word, so if you'll take your uh, Bible and open with me to the book of Titus. If you were here last week, you know that we kind of had the week of weeks uh, uh, with our missionaries here and uh, with communion. That was a highlight, a big highlight uh, for me, for sure, and I almost uh, wish that we could have just like hit paused, a pause and, and stay, have stayed there. Uh, it was so good, but that's obviously not how life works. Life just keeps moving, and yet we're thankful as it keeps moving that God gives us the opportunity to uh, come back together week after week, and uh, this week we're back, and specifically we're back to a little series we're doing on leadership. We'll get back to the Gospel of Luke in a couple of weeks. I, I can't wait. We're in uh, Luke 6, Jesus' uh, sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, uh, and we'll get back to that in a couple of weeks, but right now we're in uh, Titus chapter 1, and we're talking about leadership, leadership in the local church. And we're talking about leadership in the local church because we really, really, really want to do church right. And we want to do church right because the church belongs to God, and God has a plan for the church. So we're here, and we're part of this church, and we call this a, a local church, and God has a plan for the local church, or I guess you could say God has a plan, and the local church is a big part of that plan. So we're not here just because this is what we do and this is what we've grown up doing or something. We are here because God has a plan, and that plan matters, which means that even though this looks uh, ordinary, I know, the local church, and we're kind of used to it because there are a lot of them around 
But the church matters. The local church matters. We need strong, healthy, biblical local churches, not just places that call themselves churches, but churches who are doing what God wants them to be doing because this is a big part of how God is at work in this world right now. We don't get to read Heaven's newspaper, but if we did, the local church is a big part of what God is doing in this world right now and even in your life. And a key part of God's design for how that's going to happen, how we're going to have healthy, strong local churches is leadership. It has to do with leadership. And we say that not just because that seems like a good plan to us, but because it seems like that's what Paul's telling Titus in Titus chapter 1, actually. If you remember, Paul has left Titus in Crete, which was a a pretty bad place. Nobody had much hope for Cretans, but God had done a work there. God did what God does through the gospel, and God changed people's lives. And yet Paul knew that the work wasn't over. There was more to do, which of course is why he left Titus. He says the reason that he left him in Crete was to set the churches in order. Titus 1 verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. How? That's the question. We want to know how Paul thought about putting churches in order so that we can know how to go about building healthy local churches or just pursuing a healthy church ourselves. And the first step we saw that Paul gives Titus to putting things into order was by appointing elders, or you might say leaders. God uses leaders to take the church somewhere. Clearly, if this is where Paul starts, leaders are an important part of God's plan. And yet, maybe because they're such an important part of God's plan, we often don't get leadership right. We mess leadership up big time. I mean, who here has poor leadership stories? Uh, I have got poor leadership stories, and a lot of them are about myself. I've been a poor leader too many times. There's just a, a lot of ways that we get leadership wrong. There's a lot of unbiblical ideas about leadership out there in the world, and there's a lot of sin left in us. And so there's a lot of strange things that people do with leadership. And one reason for that is just because sometimes we're not actually paying enough attention to what the Bible teaches about leadership. It is, it's there, what we need to know. It is there, but sometimes we think we're smarter than we are. And what the Bible teaches is too simple but it's not too simple. God has given us what we need to know. And so if we're going to get leadership right, which we want to get right, we've got to start there, which is why we're looking at Titus chapter 1 and at one specific leadership office that God's given the church. And we'll look at another specific leadership office next. I can't wait for that one. But we're going to start with this specific leadership office, which Paul calls here Uh, the elder, or uh, overseers, or who we sometimes call pastors. Those are uh, different words I know, elder, overseer, 
pastors, but they're all the same thing. Churches need pastors. They need overseers. They need elders if they're going to be spiritually healthy. That was our, our first point. The, thing, the first thing we said a, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at this, what do we know about leadership from the Bible? First, we know that we need leaders. We need elders. But second, we don't just need any kind of elders, obviously. Uh, and that was our, uh, our second point, because there are certain qualifications to this office that we find in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And we began to look at the qualifications together, and we saw, like, in big capital letters, bold print, the qualifications primarily have to do with character, which we need to emphasize over and over and over, I think especially where we live, because where we live, we super value talent in our culture. Talent is like, in our culture, greater than character for a lot of people, especially when it comes to leadership, to the point where if you are talented enough, you can almost get away with anything, honestly, for, for a while at least. People will put up with a lot if you have talent. And so if we were writing this letter to Titus and we were like trying to make a list of what to look for in a leader, the list that we would give him probably would have a lot to do with talent. Or at least our culture's list would have a lot to do with talent. But Paul's has to do with character. Verse 6, he says, if anyone is above reproach. And then verse seven, he repeats himself, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, which does not mean perfect. Above reproach, it does not mean perfect. And we know that it, it literally can't mean perfect because if it did mean that, we would not have any elders. And I wanna like, exclamation point that because it's important to just explode the idea that elders are somehow different kind of men by nature than the rest of us because we like heroes this is how we we are it's kind of an interesting phenomenon that we are so proud and yet we really like heroes so much and so we're often willing to put people into a category above ourselves and we almost sort of sometimes make them into legends, you know? It might be like a little deal <laughs> that people make. Like, I'll treat you like a legend if you don't get too close to me. I don't know. But we, we do make people into legends. And while it's, it's good to respect elders, obviously, and to recognize God's work in them, we have to remember if there's anything good, it is God's work in them. <laughs> because they by themselves are weak, ordinary, sinful men. Even the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter, I was thinking Paul, and Paul's pretty intimidating. He was a, a, a great man for sure, but you know, he was a weak man too, to the point where he says somewhere that God had given him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. And I was uh, thinking about that. God had to act in this like, unusual way to make Paul's life more difficult for a long time just so he wouldn't become proud. So he had struggles like the rest of us, even Paul. 
So above reproach doesn't mean perfect, but it does mean something. <laughs> and here in Titus, Paul helps us know what it means by giving us three specific categories to evaluate as we're identifying leaders. And the, the first has to do with his family life. Then the second has to do with his personal character. And then the third has to do with his doctrinal convictions. And this is verse 9. You remember? Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And I kind of want to hold up that qualification for a minute. We looked at the others last week, but I, I want to hold up that qualification for a minute, this last one. He must hold firm and, and put a spotlight on it. That's what we're doing today, putting a spotlight on this particular qualification. What is this sermon about? This sermon's about the fact that elders and pastors must hold firm and why they must hold firm. In other words, it's about the kind of men that we need and why we need them. And I'm taking the time to do that for one thing because this is probably the one qualification on the list that most people would have the greatest problem with. And this is gonna be a rare quality in our culture because it's not a quality that most people in our culture respect, honestly. Definitely not unbelievers. I mean, if you sat down with an unbeliever and you were gonna make a list of qualities of a good person, somebody that they could respect, they are not going to think of holding firm as a positive quality. In fact, if you both made a list, there, there, there might be some things that would be on both of your lists. Uh, it's getting a little crazy now, so it might not be this way as much as it used to be. But if you're going to be really general and not too specific, if you both made a list, there are some things on your list that you, you both might have in common. Like you both might say something about their home life, or you might say something about their relationship with their kids, or you might say something about not being proud or not getting angry or not getting drunk all the time, uh, and not violent for sure. You saw what the way people responded when Will Smith just slapped that guy. So there are some things that would be on both lists, probably, maybe, your list and the unbelievers when it comes to be a, being a good person. But there's one quality I can't imagine would be on hardly any unbelievers list at all, and that would be what Paul says about believing, that they must believe, that they must hold firm. That wouldn't be there because holding firm is not seen as a good quality anymore, at least not holding firm to what the Bible teaches. In fact, for a lot of people, that would almost be seen as a sin. Like you, you can't say anything's a sin anymore, so you can't say lustful thoughts are sins anymore, and you, you can't say Certain desires are bad anymore. You can't say almost anything is bad, except you know what you can say is bad? Believing. Believing is bad. Being convinced that what you believe about the Bible is true is almost as bad as it gets. That is like the one thing you can call sin anymore. And people have all sorts of negative words for people like that. They, they call those kinds of people dogmatic. They call them proud. They call them narrow-minded. They call them fundamentalists, which is like a super scary word that used to be used for uh, like terrorists, but not anymore. It's used for people who just have strong convictions 
about the most basic truths of the gospel, like sin, like needing a savior, like there being only one way to be saved, like the inerrancy of, of scripture. It's, it's funny, or I guess sad is more like it. It's sad when you think about it because we are told to believe in ourselves. So when I said believing would not be on the list of most unbelievers, I'm not sure that I uh, quite got it right. Because we are told to believe in ourselves, like all the time. That's like the theme of every Disney movie that's ever been made. Believe in yourself. And believe in yourself no matter what. And so that means you can say all kinds of things about yourself to other people that everybody knows are, are crazy and are clearly not true. And nobody can doubt you. And if they doubt you, you're like, how dare you doubt me? Because you're supposed to hold firm to that belief. Believe in yourself no matter what. That kind of belief is positive in our culture. But we're not allowed to believe in something outside of ourselves. That's negative, unless it's science, I guess. But not biblical truth. Definitely not biblical truth. So if someone speaks and makes statements about the Bible where it's like they actually believe what the Bible says, people get angry and almost automatically doubt them as a person or hold them suspect, like something is wrong with you. What, what are you doing? Why are you talking like that? That seems kind of dangerous, which is why I'm saying I want a bold print, like bold print, not just for you, but also for me, verse nine again, and highlight this qualification where Paul says that an elder must, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, if you're looking at a leader, one of the most important things, according to the Apostle Paul to look at, is what does he believe? And how strongly does he believe it? What does he believe? Is it the trustworthy word as taught? You look at what he believes, because this is not just about generically believing. It doesn't really matter if he really believes, if he believes things that aren't true. That's not going to make him a good spiritual leader. There's an old saying, the meaning of the scripture is the scripture. And so if what you're saying about the scripture isn't the meaning of scripture, then it's not scripture, which means it doesn't have any authority if what you're saying you believe isn't the meaning of scripture. But if what you're saying you believe is the meaning of scripture, then you better really believe it. What kind of leaders do we need? We need leaders who know what the scripture teaches and who really believe it. Al Mohler, he's got a, a really good book on leadership, actually, this man named Al Mohler. But listen to this quote. He puts it like this. He says, Christians are rightly and necessarily concerned about leadership, but many Christians seem to aim no higher than secular standards and visions of leadership. We can learn a great deal from the secular world and its studies of leadership and its practices, but the last thing the church needs is warmed over business theories decorated with Christian language. In other words, we've got to go back to the Bible on leadership, and when we do, what do we see? He says, Christian leaders are called to convictional leadership, and that means leadership is defined by beliefs that are transformed into corporate action. The central role of belief is what must define any truly Christian understanding of leadership. Do you hear that? The central role of belief 
must define a Christian understanding of leadership, which makes sense if you think about the word Christian, because belief is fundamental to what it even means to be a Christian. We are believers. That's how we describe ourselves. And we're not just believers in anything. Our faith is founded in certain non-negotiable truths. There are certain non-negotiable truths that you must believe to be a Christian. And if you don't believe them, you are not a Christian. So, you know, your children will sometimes say to you uh, things like, that person seems nice. Does that mean he's a Christian? And you have to say to your children, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Because there are lots of people in this world who are nice and are not Christians. And that is possible because being a Christian is not, first of all, about being nice, but has, first of all, to do with what you believe. And so that means, of course, that being a Christian church is not just about being a place where you come to meet with nice people and have good friendships and try to help each other be good people. It's here, the church, instead, primarily to proclaim a message about certain non-negotiable truths that we have been given by God. And this message is so important that without that message, we're not a church, no matter how nice we are, because without that message, we're not even Christians, which is why belief is so important. It matters what you believe, which is why belief must define any understanding of Christian leadership, and not just belief, actually, but one step further, conviction, conviction being thoroughly convinced about what you believe. In Paul's words, we need elders that hold firm, that hold firm. In other words, we need elders with conviction. And what is conviction? Let me quote Al Mohler again. I, I love this. He says, convictions are not just beliefs. That is, they are not those beliefs that are merely held by us. Instead, Conviction, convictions hold us in their grip. A conviction is not a belief that you hold. It is a belief that holds you. Put simply, a conviction is a belief of which we are thoroughly convinced. I don't mean that we merely believe that a given set of statements is true, but that we are convinced that these truths are essential and life-changing. We live out of these truths and are willing to die for these truths, which is in intense, right? We live out of these truths and we're willing to die for these truths. That is intense. It's definitely different because most people in our culture, the fundamental thing they're living for is to live, to survive. And yet we're saying we need men who aren't here just to survive. There's something more important to them than merely surviving. It's the truth of God's word. There, there was a man named J.C. Ryle uh, who lived over 100 years ago, one of my favorite old preachers. But I love how he puts this. He says, mark what I say. If you want to do good in these times, you must throw aside indecision and take up a distinct, sharply cut doctrinal religion. 
The victories of Christianity, wherever they have been won, have been won by distinct doctrinal theology, by telling men roundly of Christ's vicarious death and sacrifice, by showing them Christ's substitution on the cross and his precious blood, by teaching them justification by faith and bidding them believe on a crucified Savior, by preaching ruin by sin, redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Spirit, by lifting up Jesus and telling men to look and live, to believe, to repent, to be converted. Christianity without distinct doctrine is a powerless thing. No dogma, no fruit. And he's not talking about being quarrelsome, obviously. And he's not talking about just being the kind of person who wants to fight like over anything. And he's not talking about thinking you know it all and never learning anything new. But he is talking about the fact that we have been shown the most important truths in the history of the world in the gospel. And so we have the truth as Christians, and if we're going to do any good at all as a church, it's not just going to be simply by us coming and trying to really be nice people. It's going to be God using the proclamation of these truths to do it. It's going to be our distinct doctrine, which is why we have to protect it, and we have to promote it, and why we're looking for leaders with conviction, and not just Conviction, again, the right convictions who, who know the gospel and who love the gospel and who aren't afraid to take a stand and say so. In other words, who are, who are willing to open their mouths on behalf of truth. If you look at verse 9, Paul takes this a, a step further. As we think about the kind of men we need as leaders, it's not just that we need men who love the truth and who hold firm to the trustworthy word. We need men who love the truth enough to teach it to us, and we need men who love the truth enough to take a stand against those who distort it and try to confuse us. And if you look at the, the way Paul puts it here, clearly there's a little bit of authority to this. We need men who are willing to shout where the Bible shouts. Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, which means this is more than just someone sharing their opinion or giving their perspective. Paul talks about exhorting in sound doctrine. The ESV says able to give sound doctrine, but the word is to exhort or to appeal Another word Paul uses in chapter 2, which is really close, is the word urge, which is what Paul, if you think about Paul, that's what he was always doing, right? I mean, he was not like, hey, uh, this is nice, take it or leave it. He's like, take it. I urge you. You need to believe this. You absolutely need to believe this. And so one characteristic of a biblical leader is that he knows how and when to speak with authority and to urge and to exhort like that. Because we obviously can't do it about everything. That's not the point. We can't always be urging and exhorting. That's a characteristic of a bad leader. We don't need elders who are passionate about everything with the same level of intensity. That is not helpful. That is confusing. We don't need leaders who have strong opinions about everything. That's not like a mark of, of godliness, just to be super passionate about things that don't matter. But we do need 
leaders who know when and how to be bold about the right things and when it's time to overlook something and when something can't be overlooked and they need to speak directly to a person and say words that they may not like to hear in a straightforward manner because they know that is what's going to be spiritually beneficial to them, which I know is not easy for some of us. That is not easy for me. And we've got excuses even. But usually it's not easy because we love ourselves sometimes more than we love other people or the, or the truth. Because the fact is loving people and loving the truth sometimes requires urging and exhorting. And you know what? Even rebuking. You see the next term Paul uses. He says rebuke or even refute. And that's a strong word. It means to strongly admonish, to be like, you are wrong. And you need to stop. And if you look at the rest of the chapter, this is where Paul starts to focus on in verses 10 through 16. You see how he talks to Titus about a group of people, verse 10, for there are many who are. And then he says, verse 11, they must be silenced. And the second half of verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply, which can be like very uncomfortable. And, and make people upset, and certainly is not usually uh, popular, at least not with the person you're rebuking and silencing. And sometimes I kind of wish we didn't have to do it, actually. I'm the kind of person who wishes that we only had to encourage as a leader. Different personalities are different, I'm sure, but I feel like I can put up with a lot, so I'm happy to encourage all the time. And I kind of wish I could just say things that are nice for people to hear. But in this world, as it actually is, only being positive like that will end up being negative. If leaders are only positive, they are negative. To have a truly positive ministry, one that does good, we need men who are able to encourage and, and also able to rebuke those who are teaching error or believing error. Why? That's who we need, number one, but, but why do we need men like that? And one reason, I guess, we've kind of already said is just because there is such a thing as truth, and it's not our truth, meaning it didn't come from us, so it's not like we just figured out a really good plan on our own and we're now sharing it with others. If you look back up at verses one through four, Paul has said that he is a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying that he's just a messenger, and his message comes from the God who doesn't lie. It is about the hope of eternal life, but it comes, this message, from God who, who never lies, and it's what saves people from hell and enables them to live forever in the presence of God. In another place, Paul talks about his message as the power of God for salvation. And you see here how he talks about it in verse 2. He, he says, he is for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. And so we're not talking about just taking a stand for anything here. There's, there's no virtue in being loud and trying to enforce your opinions about everything on everybody. Leadership's not sticking your, to your own opinion, no matter what people say. It's not about your opinion. It's about God's message, 
which is why we have to stand against error because this is God's message and we don't get to mess with that. How proud do you have to be to be willing to compromise God's message or present it as if it were only one option? That is not humility, that is arrogance. And it's arrogance because there is such a thing as truth that comes from outside of you. It comes from God, it is his message. And if it's God's message and God's truth, that truth, what we have in scripture, what is revealed, what God talks about is actually really true. There is God's way in the Bible and then there is every other way. And so when God talks about an issue, he talks about it authoritatively. And of course, we gotta make sure we really understand what he's saying about it. But when he talks about it, he knows what he's talking about because he's God. And he claims that his way is the only way and it's only what he says about it that is true, which means of course that all these other ways are, shocker, not true. In other words, they're error. There is truth and there is error. And you can pretty much count on the fact that when God speaks, if God speaks about an issue, someone else is gonna speak about it as well and say something different. Because that is just the way it's been going since the Garden of Eden. And there was a Garden of Eden. <laughs> and since the Garden of Eden, where there's been truth, it's been attacked by error. And the more important the truth is, the more serious the error, which is one reason we need men who will step up. There is truth and there is error. And you know what? There is a lot of error. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Crete specifically, as an example, Paul says, verse 10, for there are many. And these churches aren't even that old. The churches in Crete, as Paul's writing Titus. And there was a lot of good stuff happening. And yet Paul already could say there were many who were attacking the truth. And this is not just on Crete either. If you work your way through the New Testament, the danger of false teaching is almost everywhere. Like what letter in the New Testament doesn't talk about this? If you start in the Gospels, Jesus is warning about false teachers. In Acts, we just read Paul doing the same, wolves who are gonna devour the flocks. Romans is about justification by faith alone in contrast to salvation by works. First Corinthians is loaded with problems. And one of the big ones is that there were people already there saying in the church, from the church, already saying there was no resurrection of the dead, which is pretty serious. Second Corinthians takes on false apostles who had invaded the church. Galatians is one of the earliest letters, maybe the earliest letter, and yet Paul's already concerned that they're going after another gospel. Ephesians is less controversial, but it talks about a spiritual war. In Philippians, Paul's like, look out for the dogs. And he's talking about false teachers. Colossians is consumed with fighting and error about the supremacy of Christ. First and second Thessalonians take up false teaching about the Lord's coming. Throughout the pastoral epistles, Paul's calling on his disciples to take a stand for truth. Philemon, is an exception, which is good, but then Hebrews in its entirety is combating all these influences that would cause Jewish Christians to go back to Judaism. James, in James, there are religious leaders there who are fooling themselves and possibly fooling others. I'm not sure you have false teachers in First Peter, but you have the devil prowling about. Second Peter, though, warns against scoffers unsettling the church. 
1 John addresses false teaching about the person of Christ. 2 John warns about hospitality being too hospitable to heretics. And then 3 John talks about a dangerous spiritual leader talking wicked nonsense. And pretty much the whole book of Jude is a call to contend against false teachers who invaded the church. And Revelation 2 speaks of cults, which is, is kind of amazing if you think about it, because you would think these would be some of the churches who had the greatest advantages in the history of the world, as they were like planted by the apostles themselves. And yet, clearly, false teaching was a serious threat back then and now, which is one reason we need elders who are willing to rebuke, because there is a whole lot of error out there. And not just error, either, if we look at the text, evil. There are evil people. Paul says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And we're so polite nowadays that we probably don't like to talk like that. In fact, again, I know uh, everyone's different, so not everyone is like this, but some of us have a hard time believing what the Bible teaches about what our hearts are like apart from Christ. And so we can be a little naive. And so we look at people and they look normal and maybe they even seem nice. And we sometimes think people aren't as bad as the Bible says they are. And we can even feel a little bit suspicious of someone like Paul who's talking about people like this. Insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. I mean, is he just being harsh? And sometimes we think that because there are people who are way too harsh. <laughs> and there are people who say more than they know and attack anyone, even if they don't know what they're talking about. And that is a big problem. I've seen it. We're in a war. We're soldiers. But listen, you're not a good soldier if you shoot your friends. And the truth is that there is such a thing as common grace as well. And so not everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. But there are bad people out there. If we look at what Paul's telling Titus, it's clear. And they don't always wear a sign around their neck that says, I am bad. I am a false teacher, which is part of what makes them dangerous. That's how a lot of people who abuse children get away with it, right? Because everybody thinks they can spot someone who abuses children. It's obvious, they look like child abusers or something, but that is not how it works. That is not how it works usually with child abusers or sometimes even with false teachers. You see here how Paul talks about the circumcision party and, and we're not gonna dive too deep into what that means, but the thing is he's talking about people who are religious and who would have claimed to be super serious about religion and who would have gone around claiming to be more serious about God's law than Paul was. So that's part of the problem. They might have been saying with Paul, he's not serious enough. And so these people looked impressive outwardly. And yet the reality was that they were what? Verse 9, insubordinate, which means rebellious. They, they hated authority. They were empty talkers. And Paul there doesn't mean they're just talking nonsense. He means they were talking about important things. They were claiming to be wise, sounding like they knew what they were talking about, but they were saying stuff that was blasphemous. That was like idolatrous, which made it empty and unhelpful. And the thing is, they knew it. Paul says they were deceivers. That's the last word there, and that's not too hard to interpret, but they were teaching things that were false, and not accidentally, 
either, but purposefully. We see their motives at the end of verse 11. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. In other words, they were greedy. And you know what? While we don't have too many people of the circumcision party around anymore that I know of, we, 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 we do have a lot of people who are still basically like this. And maybe they seem to have our interests at mind, and maybe they seem to be spiritual, they seem to be religious, they seem to be nice, they have a certain amount of knowledge, and they're really good talkers, and yet they're not accountable to anyone because they don't want to be, and they're actually saying things that are the opposite of what the Bible teaches and not helpful, they're empty, and they're lying to us because they want to use us for what they can get out of us, which is why we need a local church. And why we so desperately need good elders, because there is truth, there is error, and there are evil people. And the error these evil people teach has consequences. And so Paul says they must be silenced, which is a a strong word, verse 11. It means muzzled, and he's talking about the, the church context here. But you might think of a pit bull that's been trained to fight, and it comes into the backyard with your children, or you're going to have to put something over its mouth or you're going to get them out of there for sure. Get the dog out of your yard because you know the danger, which is what Paul's telling Titus here about error. Error has an impact. So you can't just sit back. He says it's upsetting whole families, verse 11. And the word upsetting doesn't just mean like, oh, I just so bother. It actually means like ruining. We sometimes think of uh, truth in the Bible like uh, vanilla ice cream. Some people like it, some people don't. So maybe I like vanilla ice cream and you like chocolate, which is why it feels weird to rebuke people over error or to urge people, like, you need to believe this because it feels like saying, you need to like vanilla ice cream. But it's not like that. It's more like talking about gravity and someone saying, I don't like gravity. I don't identify with gravity because I like to fly. I believe I can fly because Obviously, that belief matters, and that will impact you when you jump out of an airplane. Airplane. Truth matters. Error matters. What you believe about the gospel impacts your life. It has consequences. I remember sitting down with a young man, and he had a wife and two children, and he had been without a job for a, a long time. And um, he was looking for one. He had some education, but man, we were sitting in his, uh, sitting in his apartment. It wasn't his apartment. He was staying with three families in this one-bedroom apartment, and his family was all sleeping there in the living room because they didn't have money for rent, and they were suffering. And, man, they were suffering. I met him because we had given him a small food pack, and he was, when we gave it to him, he was, like, almost crying with thanks. And so he invited us to his home to talk to him some more, and he was Congolese, and he had been doing fine in the Congo, uh, according to him. But he moved to South Africa, and the reason he moved was because he went to church and a prophet stood up that day and told him he had to go to South Africa, told him he was going to become a famous pastor in South Africa. And he believed him. And his whole life was turned upside down. And not just his, but his children's, his family's. Error has real-life consequences, very real-life consequences. And it may not be some religious prophet. It might just be error that you're hearing from the people around you. Stuff they're saying that isn't based on God's word. But I mean, the consequences are just as real. People, listen, people get divorced because of error. People can't get out of depression because of error. 
Sin is tolerated because of error. You see little children, and their lives are getting messed up significantly because of error. It's scary, actually. You start to think about it. And that's part of what makes the local church important, because this is part of God's plan for the local church to help protect us. And yet, if it's going to protect us, we need men who what? Know the truth and love the truth and are growing, continually growing in their knowledge of the truth so they can teach us the truth and stand up against those who distort it because it's sneaky error. It's really sneaky, these false teachers. And you know part of what makes it so sneaky, besides the fact that they're lying, what makes error so sneaky first is that they're usually telling us what we like to hear. So if you look specifically at what these false teachers were talking about there in Crete, they weren't sounding on the surface like every other Cretan because in verse 10, Paul talks about them as being of the circumcision party, and that wasn't a Cretan thing. Circumcision is this idea that comes from the Bible, actually, the, the circumcision they were talking about. And so this is a group who claimed to be concerned about the Bible. And you read the rest of the New Testament, you see that some of them even claim to be Christians. And yet, if you look at verse 12, how does Paul describe them? He quotes one of uh, their Cretan prophets, actually. And he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, which is a general statement about Cretans. But who's Paul talking specifically about there? He's applying it to the men who need to be silenced. And so, yeah, uh, maybe on the outside they sounded one way, talking about circumcision and all these things kind of Jewish, kind of religious, but on the inside, Paul's saying, if you take all that religious stuff away and you looked on the inside, they are literally no different than every other Cretan on the planet, which is one thing that makes false teachers so attractive. I always say, if you want to get people to believe you and you want to make a lot of money, you find out what they already think, what they're already like. You take their culture and then you wrap it up in fancy sounding language. Uh, that makes them feel better about themselves. And maybe you figure out what they like in a leader, and then you get that. So in Africa, they would look up to these people called sangomas, so you look like a sangoma, but you're in the church. Or in America, we like guys with lots of degrees, so you get a degree. But you basically find a way to tell people what they already want to hear. <laughs> and what do you get? You get like a best-selling book you get a lot of money, a lot of influence. People love that stuff. People will pay all kinds of money to go to you for you to tell them what they want to hear. And not just people, us. Though it's easier to see in other cultures, that's kind of the, the problem. Like when we're reading about the circumcision party or the book of Galatians, you're like, how could these, how could these people fall for that stuff? But we're not like living in this completely different category. We can be fooled as well. And so maybe what fools us looks a little different because we're coming from a different place, a different culture. But one reason false teaching is so sneaky and dangerous is because it's usually telling us what we already want to hear with religious language. Like these teachers in, in Crete who may have claimed to be interested in Scripture. When Paul says in reality, verse 14, they were just devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, which is so sad because even though they were close to the Bible, ultimately they were just 
trading God's word for the ideas of people. And yet, even though that's such a bad trade, it's really tempting to listen to, first of all, because it sounds like stuff we're used to, and second of all, because it usually focuses on our problems as coming from outside of us, rather than addressing what's going on in our hearts, which is a a second reason it's easy to fall for. If you look at verse 15, Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled, which seems almost like a random statement to us, but it's connected to what he knew these false teachers were saying there in Crete. They must have been saying certain things were not pure and emphasizing not doing this and not doing that as the key to spiritual maturity without actually getting to the heart. And you know, even though that false teaching is not one we're tempted by in the same exact way anymore. That idea is basically what's true of almost every false teaching, which is that our biggest problems are what other people do to us or somehow, in some other way, external to us rather than coming from inside of us, which, of course, is really nice to hear when you're having a problem and you're struggling with something because it takes the focus off of you and puts it on something outside of you. And sometimes it's especially deceptive because it it kind of has a hint of truth to it because other people have sinned against us and we are living in a broken world. But if we're talking about something the Bible actually calls sin and we're not willing to deal with what's going on in our own hearts, that ends up being really empty and unhelpful because it doesn't deal with the most significant problem which should have been pretty obvious to the Cretan believers if they just looked at the false teachers' lives. Because you see in verse 16, Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And yet people were listening to them, even though their lives were clearly broken, which still happens all the time, if you think about it. People being counseled by obviously really wicked people and yet they're listening. This is the real world. Next time somebody tells you, I need to do something, and it's like this really terrible unbiblical decision, not like complicated, like clearly not from the Bible, and you ask them, where did you get that counsel? Where did you hear that you need to do that? Who gave you that counsel? It is amazing how often that counsel is coming from people whose lives you would never want to imitate. And in Paul's day, at least they were religious, while in ours, I think the errors we're tempted by are not so outwardly Christian as the ones in Crete. And so we don't always even recognize what's happening, but we're taking counsel on some of the most important issues of life from out and out unbelievers. And you know it's a challenge not to get led in the wrong way because there's just so much of this counsel coming at us all the time. And sometimes it's talking about stuff the Bible talks about, and it's teaching, though it might not call itself teaching, but we're constantly being taught. I was reading just like a novel the other day. Uh, it was a, supposed to be entertainment. It was a normal novel, but I finally had to put it down because you wouldn't believe how many false ideas about the world were being presented as normative, supposed to be believed. It's coming at us from everywhere, all this error, and yet we don't even recognize it all the time because it's sneaky. And it's telling us what we want to hear and what seems normal to us while not actually dealing with the real problems. But it speaks authoritatively using human ideas and strategies and focuses on the externals and doesn't work, which we would see if we looked a little closer 
at who was actually teaching us all this stuff. That would be obvious, and we wouldn't take it as seriously because their lives are often so anti-God, and yet we don't always look closer. And so we do often get fooled, which is one reason we need elders if we're going to be a strong, healthy local church, but not just any kind of elder because there are qualifications, and the qualifications aren't so much about talent. They're about character and conviction. If we're going to be a strong and healthy church, we don't just need men who are really good at entertaining us, leading us or really good at business to lead us. We need men whose lives have been turned upside down by the gospel, who have been transformed. They're, wick, they're sinful men. They need a savior, but Jesus has saved them. And they love him. And they're not perfect, but they're being changed by Christ. And because they're being changed by Christ, they're growing in their love for Christ and their love for the gospel. And they're learning over time to live lives that are more and more worthy of the gospel. And they're showing us what it looks like to live a life that's been transformed by Jesus Christ, which includes repenting, by the way, and being needy, by the way. But it, they're showing us what it looks like to be a person who, who knows Christ and who are willing themselves to take a stand for the gospel, teaching us what we need to know and, and standing up when, when they need to by protecting us from those who try to distort it. Will you uh, pray with me uh, that God will give us men like that? And that's actually one of the things we're going to come and pray for next week at our uh, prayer meeting, our equipping hour. We're going to get on our knees as a church and do what the church in Antioch did, which was cry out to God to raise up leaders like this. Father, who is sufficient for these things? Uh, clearly, Jesus, you're the only one who can lead your church, and we're so thankful that ultimately you are the one who cares for your sheep. You are the one who loves your people. You are looking out for them. You've given them the Holy Spirit. You've given them the word, but you've also given them the church. This is a gift from you, and you are actively raising up leaders and doing something in them and giving them a conviction and love for the truth, and we're thankful for that, but we also pray, Lord, help us, because we're definitely living in a world that the word truth is like a bad word, and some of us uh, even, Lord, I know for myself there have been times where I'm so impacted by that that taking a stand is, is difficult, and yet, Lord, we love you, and, and we know the gospel is true, and so we ask, Lord, that you would keep us from being proud and just going around and shouting about our own opinions and just trying to get everybody to be like us, but, Lord, you would also help us not to be that, but to be the kind of men who know what you think matters and who whisper where you whisper, sure, but also shout where you shout and shout when you say to shout. And uh, we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.